Psalm 113, Psalm 113. And tonight's psalm is entitled, The Majesty and the Condescension of God, or The Lowliness of God. You know, God is high, He's above all things, He dwells in the heavens, and yet He lowers Himself to meet the needs of man. This is a psalm describing praise, and it starts and it ends with the words, praise the Lord. And in Hebrew, it's hallelujah. Praise the Lord is the Hebrew word hallelujah. This psalm and Psalm 114 are regularly read at the Passover Seder, which is a celebratory meal before the serving of that dinner. Psalm 115 through 118 are read following the dinner. The structure of the psalm goes like this. First of all, an exhortation to praise the name of the Lord, verses 1 through 3. Second, a celebration of the superior glory and abundant mercy of the Lord, in verses 4 through 6. And third, illustrations of God's grace in verses 7 through 9. The theme of this psalm is the scope of God's care and God's grace, mercy demonstrated by his concern for the poor and the oppressed. The author is anonymous. We don't know who it is. Have you ever thought about what God is like? What a question. It's a great question. The only problem is it can't be answered. And the reason is because you can't compare him to anything. You know, you can't compare God to anything. In Isaiah 46.5, God says, To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? Now, some people think that Satan is his equal. That Satan is just the opposite of God, except he's on the side of evil. But Satan isn't equal to God in anything. He doesn't even come close to God. Satan is not omnipotent. He's not omniscient, that is all-knowing. He's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere all the time. He's not all-powerful like God is. Satan has to have God's permission to do anything. And the Lord has him, you could say, on a long leash because he does do a lot of damage, but God has him under control. Isaiah 45, 21, it says, And there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. You see, no one other than Jehovah God is adequate to rule. He's a just God, and he rules in justice, and he'll carry out justice for those that are oppressed. None or no one besides Jehovah is able to help. As he is a just God, so is he the Savior, who can save without anybody's help. But without him, none can be saved. So those who have no sense of truth and falsehood good and evil, nor care for their own interests that would set up anybody else in competition with him. He will carry out justice. Of those are, no, there's none like him. So again, God is in a league all by himself. He's one of a kind. There's nothing or no one that even comes close to him. So the only thing that we can talk about him is always faulty, and it, there can only be a similarity. We could say that he's like a loving father, and we saw that in our message this morning in our studies in in the life of Christ. We can say he's like a loving father. He's like a great king or a great friend or less than that. We can only talk about what he's done. We can say that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth or he's our savior through the work in Christ. But here 
In Psalm 113, though God is described in comparison to other things and by what he's done, yet all the time the psalmist knows that God can never be perfectly or even satisfactorily described. The psalmist says in verses 5 and 6, Who is like the Lord our God, who dwells on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth? The answer is pretty easy. Who is like our God? No one, no one or no thing is really like our God. Now this psalm is a strong praise psalm. It's a great example of what our praise of God should be. And this psalm starts and it ends with the words, praise the Lord. Look at the first three lines in verse one. They all start with an exhortation for the servants of the Lord to praise him. Notice in verse one, it says, praise the name of the Lord. Uh, It says in, in verse two, Blessed be the name of the Lord. In verse 3, it says, praise the name of the Lord. So again, the first three lines in verse 1. So again, then the the, the psalmist puts an an important emphasis on God's name in verse 1, 2, and 3. We don't think too much about names today. Now, you know, when a lot of parents, when they we pick names for their children, you know, today, we, you know, we get the little books and we go throughout the list and we like the names or, or we want them to be cool. We want them to be different. They got to have a distinct ring to them. Yeah, again, they, they have to be different. But after that, they don't have a lot of meaning to them. But it was a whole lot different in Bible times when names meant a lot. Many times a name would stand for a characteristic or something related to the person's history or time. Sometimes a new name was given to point out a change of character or a meaningful event in a person's life. In the covenant that God made with with Abram, he changed Abram's name from Abram to Abraham, the name meaning father of the multitude or exalted father. Jacob's name meant supplanter or deceiver, and rightly so, because it described his early life that he was a deceiver. But in his painful spiritual experience in Peniel, His name was changed to Israel to point out that as a supernatural prince, he had power with God. Moses changed Hosea's name to Joshua, which means salvation, and prophetically spoke of his work in delivering Israel from his enemies. Isaiah gave his two sons symbolic names relating to to his prophecies to Israel. And then Jesus beautifully prophesied the strong qualities to be developed in Peter the fisherman. And he recruited Peter as a disciple when he changed Simon's name to Cephas, meaning rock. Saul had such a life-changing experience that his name and his nature was changed. One of God's greatest revelations was remembered in a name, the name Methuselah, which meant when he is gone, it shall be sent. And that was a prophecy regarding the flood. But what a neat testimony of God's grace and patience that the one who lived the longest, Methuselah, represented the length of opportunity that man had to repent and to be spared destruction was the longest one to live. But of all the names in history, none are so worthy of talking about, so revered, so magnificent and unmatched as the name of Jesus Paul, in his great passage in Philippians 2.9, uh, about the person, the character of Christ, he said, God gave him the name that is above every name. 
many, and we, you know, through the years, many inspired hymn writers and songwriters got that idea, and they wrote words that have found an honored place in our hymn books. All through the Old Testament and New Testament, you'll find more than 100 names and titles for Jesus. Why is that? Because the best way, one of the best ways to know and understand Jesus is to recognize the picture that's put together by all the different names and titles that are given to us in Scripture. Every name of Christ, every title of Christ, shows some single character or attribute about who he is, about his purpose. So when you look at all the different names throughout the Bible and you kind of put, they're like a puzzle and you put them together, you see who Christ is. You get a picture of who Christ is. I love what A.W. Tozer said. He said, no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. And he believed that we are likely to resemble our idea of God. We, we, you know, what we think of God, we begin to resemble that idea of God. You know, there's a, a tribe in Papua New Guinea who had this congenital birth defect where they had one leg shorter than the other. And when they carved out their God, guess what? The image had one leg shorter than the other. Because again, we take on the image of our God. The, 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 you know, what we think of God. And he believed that worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For the Christian, it matters a lot what we think about Jesus. It matters a lot about the idea we have of him and the ministry to and through us. In the case of God, the name of the Lord is very important because it has to do with the discovery of who God is. In other words, it's not just any God that we worship. And it's not just any God that we are to worship. We are to praise the one true living God. The God who has revealed himself through creation on Sinai. And in more recent times, he's revealed himself in the person of his only son, Jesus Christ. And we have to pay special attention to the revelation that he gave on Mount Sinai because that's where the name Jehovah was revealed to Moses. And this psalm is emphasizing this important name, Jehovah. And the name Jehovah is found four times in verses 1 through 3. It's found five times if you count the opening phrase, praise the Lord. It's also found in verses 4 through 5 and in the closing praise the Lord. So a total of eight times. And we see it here in the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is the name for Jehovah. It's, uh, it's possibly pronounced Yahweh in Hebrew, but traditionally in English, it's Jehovah. It means I am that I am, or I will be what I will be. And it's a name that speaks of an overabundance of God's attributes. It speaks of God as a person. God is a person. He's not some ghost or some feeling or some theory or some idea, some imaginary thing. God is a person. And it's God who made his name known to Moses. Moses tell him, I am that I am. And he did it by speaking to him. God spoke to Moses. Again, we're not dealing with some theoretical and imaginary God. God is a divine person who's created 
uh, and communicates with persons. He's created man, and he communicates with man, made in his own image. And it's because God is a person, three in one, as the doctrine of the Trinity affirms, that we can know him and that we can fellowship with him. You can't have fellowship with a theory or some heavenly idea or some imaginary person. Secondly, we learn through his name, Jehovah, again, Lord in all capitals, that not only is God a person, but God is self-existent. See, because he had no beginning. God answers to nobody. And because he had no beginning, he had no origins, that is nothing, that, which means that nothing caused him, nothing created him, nothing brought him into being. Or nothing can explain him. We only come to know him as he makes himself known to us. And Jesus said, you want to know the Father? Know me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've heard me, you heard the Father. We can only know him as he makes himself known to us. And even then, we don't really know him. We only know him as he compares himself to us and to the earthly things that we know. The third thing that we learn about Jehovah is that God is self-sufficient. He needs nothing. That means God doesn't need anything or anyone to exist. God doesn't need us as much as maybe we think he does. I'm not a great catch. I'm not of any great worth to him. He doesn't need to, he didn't need to create us. And you know what, again, he doesn't need us to do anything for him. There's nothing that I can do for him. There's nothing that I can give him that he needs. God graciously, think about it, God graciously uses us to carry out his plans, his purposes, just like he used Moses to deliver Israel out of Egypt. But he didn't need Moses. He didn't need Moses any more than he needs us. God doesn't need us to help him. Most of the time, we need him to get us out of the mess that we make in his name. He'd be better off without us because many times he has to undo the things that we do. But God's gracious and he's loving and he wants to use us. That's, That's amazing. Again, God doesn't need us to help him. He doesn't need us to defend him. And he doesn't need us to worship him. It's our privilege. It's our blessing to do that, that we get to do those things. We don't contribute anything to God. We don't make God any better, any worse because we're his children. We don't add to his greatness. We don't add to his wealth. We don't add anything to his person, to who he is. Again, he's not better because we're his children. When we understand that, we will begin to understand why the Bible has so much to say about the need for faith in him alone and why unbelief is such a terrible sin. If we refuse to trust God, what we're really saying is that, you know what? Some other person or thing is more trustworthy and usually itself. I usually trust in myself more than I do in God which is total nonsense, and it slanders the character of God. It says that I think I can do better in taking care of my life than God can. The fourth thing that we learn in the mighty name of God, the Lord Jehovah, that he's eternal. God is eternal. That means he's everlasting. Just like he had no beginning, he has no end. 
This means that God is, always has been, and always will be eternal. And that he's always the same in his eternal being. I mean, that's comforting. What a comfort that is because Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 3.11, he's put eternity in our hearts. We want to live forever. Do you know anybody? Well, again, in, in, in the right mind who says, I want to die. Of course, the Christian does because they want to be with the Lord. But that's why we want to live for eternity. Because God has put eternity in our hearts. And we know that we will be in eternity if we're in him through Christ Jesus. The next thing that we learn about the mighty name, the Lord, is that God is immutable. That means that God is unchanging. And thank God for that. I mean, we change every day, all the time. He never changes in himself. The way he is, was yesterday, he is today, and he will be tomorrow. And as Hebrews 13 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I never have to worry about him changing his mind about me. God's immutability means two important things to us. First, you can trust him to be who he says he is. He's the same God now and in every way as he was with Moses. Not one of God's attributes will ever change. Second thing we know about his immutability is that God is inescapable. That is, you can't get away from God. No matter where you go, you can't. The Bible says that the world can't contain him. That being the case, where are you going to go where he's not? He's not going to go away. He's not going to go away from us. We can't get away from him. The psalmist made that very clear in Psalm 139, 7 through 12. The psalmist said, I can never escape from your spirit, O Lord. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the place of the dead, hell, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night. But even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. Now, we might want to get away from him. <laughs> and sometimes we do. We might ignore him. Hoping that he'll go away. And if we reject him, he won't go away. But one day we will have to reckon with him. One day, we will give an account of our life. And when we stand before him, he's going to ask, what did you do with my son? What did you do with Jesus Christ? Now, if we're a believer, Jesus is going to be our inner, he's going to be there. And he say, Father, he's one of mine. And at that point, he'll tell the angels, usher him into my kingdom. But again, if, if we aren't able to say, well, I, I, I knew Jesus personally. Now, he was my Savior. He was my Lord. I gave him my life. And the angels are going to cast him into hell. And again, it's, it's, it's like the, the two men in, 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 in Matthew chapter 7 that we'll look at that, you know, uh, in, the, in the weeks to come, who built on two different foundations. You know, one built on the sand and one built on the, on, the, uh, on the rocks. Now, from a distance, the houses that they built probably look very much alike. They probably look very much alike in their character. 
But it says on that day when the, when the rains came and the floods came and the winds blew, it says one of those houses fell and it was very great. And, and so again, it, that foundation must be Jesus Christ. We're not going to get in by saying, you know, well, Lord, you know, I, I, I did this in your name. I cast out demons in your name. I served in the church. I, I, I did all of these things, you know, for you. And yet Jesus is going to say, hey, I never knew you. And it's not that he didn't literally know him. What he means by saying, I didn't know you, he says, I didn't didn't know you personally. You didn't know me personally. I didn't know you in terms of a personal relationship with me. And so we need to understand that because one day we will give an account for our life. What did we do with the son? Then after the psalmist calls on the servants of the Lord to praise him, it says, notice in verse 3, from the rising of the sun to its going down. That means from east to west. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 right now. Let's read verse 1 through 3 from Psalm 113. It says, Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Notice, from the rising of the sun to its going down, the Lord's name is to be praised. So from the rising of the sun to its going down means from the east to the west. Sun rising in the west, going down in the east. It means he goes on praising God uh, directly, worshiping him as who he is. Notice verse 4, the Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. So again, after the psalmist calls, calls on the servants of God to praise him from the rising of the sun to its going down, that is, from east to west, he goes on to next praising him directly, worshiping him as the one, again, where it says, the Lord is high above all nations, his glory is above the heavens. Now, again, from the rising of the sun, listen to Malachi 1.11. Malachi says, from the, for from the rising of the sun... Even to its going down, God says, My name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. His name is to be great among us, among the nations. The word nations is heathens. We, as God's people, are to, are to take that great name to a dark and lost world. That's what we've been called to do as servants of the Lord. It's to take that mighty, wonderful name of God and tell it to the whole world. That they may know how great and how wonderful and mighty our God is. So again, God had the chosen people, the Jews. And it was through the Jews that he had planned to save and bless the whole world. And today, you know what? God still wants to save and he still wants to bless the whole world now but through all of who believe in him gentiles and jews alike but christians are now his chosen people we're his peculiar treasure we're his kings and priests and our offering to the lord is our life there's no better way to make christ known than through our life through the way that we live you know Would our life draw people to Christ or would it repel people from Christ? That's a serious thing to consider. 
because, you know, I would hate to think that my life, you know, and, and I go around saying I'm a Christian, and, and especially being a pastor, and I love the Word of God, and I love God, and, and yet people see my life, and it goes, why would I want to go to that guy's church? Why would, why, why would I want to serve Jesus Christ? Because of him. And how often do you hear that? Oh, yeah, I used to know a Christian, but he was a hypocrite. Oh, I, yeah, I, I, you know, I went to church once, and they were, you know, and it was this and that, and, and because of something that they experienced or some, you know, thing that, that, that they, they saw, that, was, that wasn't right. And then when we will be held accountable. Do we, do we again, it, it, they're not going to necessarily come to Christ automatically, but I don't want my life to, to be the reason that they said, hey, you know, I'd never go to that church, or I'd never believe that guy. Because his life, you know, spoke opposite of what he was, he was talking about. We are to, again, give our life as a witness for Christ. We are to honor him through our life. And we're his chosen people, and we're to do that. And we're to honor him, again, by the way that we live. Again, getting the name of Christ to a, a lost and hurting world, it starts with me. This calling starts with me. It starts in my home, and then in my neighborhood, and then it goes out. Like Jesus said to the disciples, you know, when, on the day of Pentecost. You know, it's to start in Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. Judea was home. Then Samaria was the next city, and Judea was, the, was, was going out. But it has to start with me. It has to start at home, then my neighborhood, and my workplace, and, and so on. But it doesn't stop there. We have to work and we have to pray so that God's name will be honored everywhere we go. Verse 5. <clears throat> who is like the Lord our God who dwells on high? Again, this is a very important uh, question. It's asked many times in the Old Testament. Listen to what Micah asked in Micah seven eighteen. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Thank God for his mercy. Man, we need his mercy every single day, every moment of the day because I mess up all day long. That old nature that wants to rise up and have its way, you know, getting angry or thinking bad thoughts. Like Paul said, hey, I want to do right, and I know what's the right thing to do. He says, but I, there's that, that law in me that, that seems to overrule, and, and I am doing what's not right and what I don't want to do. And how many times can we admit to that? What blows Micah away in what he said is that this great, one-of-a-kind God forgives sin. And thank God he forgives sin. What amazes the psalmist is that God is so high above everyone and everything else that, that God has to stoop down. Look at verse 6. Who, notice, who humbles himself to see, or this to behold, which means to see the things that are in the heavens and the things under in the earth. God humbles himself to see what's going on in the earth and the heavens. And at the same time, this infinite Almighty God, the same God, takes the time to take care of the lowly like us. 
Even the most exalted, wonderful, and glorious parts of creation are far, far beneath the Creator. The New Testament even goes beyond this psalm when it describes how Jesus not only looked down on us to see us in in our misery and sin and sorrows, but also actually came down. Came down to us to lift us up. How did he come down? In the person of Jesus Christ, the incarnation. He came down in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. When he saw our misery and our sin and our sorrows. He came here to this earth. He stepped out of the glorious galaxies that he made. That he walked among. And he came here to this filthy earth. Why? To lift us up. Think about that. He came down to lift us up. Man. Paul said in Philippians 2, 5 through 9, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, notice, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but, notice, made himself of no reputation. He didn't come here to be somebody. He didn't come here to make a reputation for himself. He came here to lift us up. He said, taking the form of a bondservant. Notice, he took the form of a bondservant. That is the lowest form of servant there was in that day. A bondservant had no say. He had no rights. He was just a piece of property. And that's the form that he took here when he came. And it says, he came in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, it says, he humbled himself. And he became obedient, notice, to the point of death, even the death of the cross. How obedient are we to be? Even to the point of death, if need be. I mean, there's nothing more amazing or more beyond our understanding than Jesus' humiliation for us. As he took that place on the cross, which was my place, he took that place on the cross and people mocked him. They wagged their heads at him in disgust, treated like a common criminal. And he did that for us. That's why we can also say, who is like the Lord our God? The answer, no one. No one would do that for us but Jesus Christ. No one is like our great Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7 and 8. He raises the poor out of the dust and he lifts the needy out of the ash heap that he may seat him with princes, with the princes of his people. God even stoops down to lift up the poor and the needy. But you know what? He does something even better than that. He raises the poor and the needy to sit with princes. Look at verse 9. He grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. The psalmist who is calling all servants to praise the high and wonderful God ends with a reference to God's provision for the barren woman. The end here is the high point of the whole psalm. It makes the point of the whole psalm. What is most praiseworthy about God to the psalmist is that even though God is infinite, and though God is high above everything, even the heavens, He stoops down, He humbles Himself to raise the poor out of the dirt, 
the needy out of the ash heap, and even the barren woman from the disgrace of barrenness brought that was brought her in those days. For a woman to not be able to have children in biblical times, that was a disgrace. She was looked down upon. But look at the love of Christ. He raised her up. He, even the barren woman, he saved from the disgrace of barrenness in those days. And the psalmist ends the psalm by saying that the great and glorious God of the Bible, he isn't just concerned about needy people in general, but also with every individual. God cares about every living soul. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. He cares about you. And if you you ever think he doesn't, always remember the cross. Look at the cross and you will find out how much God cares about you. Even when you didn't care about God. Even when you didn't love God. Even when you maybe cursed God or shook your fist at God. They said, God still loves you. When I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. That's how much God loves us. He cares about you. He cares about me. He cares about you personally. He cares for us specifically in two ways. One way, the first way, he saves us from our sin one at a time. Not everybody experiences being raised from the dust or ash heap to sit with princes on a throne. But all who are saved by Jesus Christ are lifted up from the garbage dump of this corrupt world to sit with Jesus Christ in his glory and rule with him. One day that's going to take place. And I hope that that's your experience tonight. I hope that's where you are tonight. Do you know Jesus Christ in a personal relationship? Have you received him? Have you made him your Lord and your Savior? Has Jesus Christ... Has God, through Christ, raised you up in faith in Christ Jesus? Again, I hope that that he is your personal Savior and your personal Lord. Secondly, he rescues us when we're cast down. Down and out people aren't just one big group of people, though this is how society usually thinks of them. You know, they just look at everybody as a whole. They're all just a bunch of down and out people. No, they're individual people to God. They're individual people who have have suffered certain things or setbacks and disappointments in their life. They're not discouraged in, in some general way. God knows each of these persons individually. He knows you individually. He knows what's discouraged you. It's not just discouragement in general. He knows what's discouraged you. He knows all about you. He knows you better than you know yourself. Remember when Peter said, Lord, I'll never fail you. I'll never deny you. I'll never let, I'll die for you. Even all of these guys, they, they abandon you and, they, and, they, and they, they deny you. I'll never deny you, Peter. Remember Jesus, Peter, you're going to deny me three times? No way. Again, Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. Even the very hairs of our head are numbered, Luke said, Jesus says in Luke 12, 7. 
And I love Psalm 147.4. It says that he, God, counts the number of stars and he calls them all by name. How many billions and billions of stars are there in the galaxies? And guess what? He calls them all by name and he knows each one. He knows the number of them. If that's true, how much more important are you to him? God knows who you are, where you are, and he knows you by name. God clearly cares for you. And God knows exactly what you are going through. He knows exactly what you're suffering tonight. And in addition to this, God is, here's the neat thing about it. God is able to do something about it. Now, how many times do we, you know, tell somebody our burdens and the the, the bad situation they're in and, and all they can do is sympathize with us? Oh, brother, I'm sorry to hear that, you know, and I'll pray for you. And, and you know, and, but our God is actually able to do something about it. He's able to lift you up and he's able to seat you with princes. In closing. Who should worship the Lord? Verse one says servants of the Lord. When should we worship the Lord? Verse two says all the time from this time forth and evermore. Where should we worship the Lord? In every place. Verse 3 says, from the rising of the sun to its going down. That is from east to west, every place we're to worship. Why do we worship the Lord? Because of who he is, because of who God is. Verse 4 says, he's the Lord high above all the nations. And lastly, because of what he does. Verse 7 and 8 says, He raises the poor out of the dust, and he lifts the needy out of the ash heap, that he may sit with him, sit he seat him with princes, and he grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. That's why we are to praise the Lord. Father, thank you again for this wonderful psalm, Lord, this encouraging psalm, this promising psalm, Lord. Father, we thank you. For being our God, the one and only true living God, the almighty God, the omnipotent God, the omniscient God, the omnipresent God. Again, a God unlike any other God. None can compare with you, Father. We're so thankful for that. How foolish it is to depend on anything else or anyone else, Lord. God, help us to focus our eyes on you. Help us to look unto you, God, the author and the finisher of our faith, the living God, the true God, the way, the truth, and the life. Father, we pray tonight that if there's anybody here that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, that through this timely psalm, Father, that your spirit has spoken to their heart. The worship team is going to lead us in a song of worship right now. And this time is for you. If the Spirit has spoken to your heart and you recognize, I need God. I need Christ in my life. I need to be saved. I need my sins forgiven. I need to be born again. I need a new life start. Then as we worship, you get up out of your seat. You make your way down the aisles towards the steps up front, and I'll meet you there. And when the song is over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.